guess I have to let you go. <laughs> Amen. Well, uh, I might, I don't know what I want to do right now. I've got a couple of announcements, but I'm not going to go to my announcements. Let's just go right to the Word of God, and I'll, I'll try to remember what my announcements are. We are at the end of a series in Daniel. And for those of you who have been with us for the last five weeks, or this is the fifth week, for the last four weeks, you have heard, um, and if you have never read the passages of Scripture, if you've read them and they've come alive again, you've been listening to, you've been reflecting on these remarkable lives, these remarkable men that are highlighted in this passage of Scripture, who from the earliest days of their life were yielded to God in such a way that when trials came in their life, when persecution came at the hand of people around them, they decided, we're going to trust God. Pretty remarkable stories that we've read about dreams being uh, spoken, or dreams being had, and revelations being given to these men, Daniel specifically in that instance, to not only know the dream, but to know the interpretation. Courage. Um, at the beginning of their captivity into Babylon, to be able to say to the king and his officials, we're going to live for God in the way that God has called us to live, and we're not going to bow down to a pole or an idol. We're not going to bow down to your commands if they contradict our faith and our living God. And we're going to trust that this action will, will preserve us. Whatever that looks like, we're going to stand on the side of God. We, we've heard... We read about the story of these young men being taken to the very test of their faith by being threatened with death itself and saying, you know what, we trust that God's going to deliver us, but if He doesn't and you throw us into this fire, we'll still be okay and God will still be on His throne and He will still be glorified in the midst of our death. And God delivered them from the fire. We heard last week uh, the story of, of uh, a king that was filled with pride and what that pride looked like in his life, but also what that, that looks like in our lives and how we can live a life of humility and a life of surrender and dependence upon God, and God can honor us in the midst of that acknowledgement of him. And today we finish this series uh, looking at a very, very familiar story for those of us who've grown up in church, but of Daniel um, and his... his uh, Faithful life being on display in such a way that those around him want his life to be destroyed um, in the den of lions. God being gloriously wonderful, God being sovereign in all of his ways, and some men being highlighted in these stories who believe God in such a way that no matter what the circumstance or trial or temptation or test they were involved in, they said, we can trust God. That's the story of Daniel. We can trust God. So that when we sing this song this morning, and we say, God, there's ways. There are circumstances in our life. And you know what? When you walk into this room, we've got close to 200 people in this building today. I bet we have 200 different stories. I bet we have 200 different ways in which the words of this scripture and the story that we are hearing or that we're, we're singing about impacts our own life. But isn't it awesome that though we have 200 stories, we have one God? 
And that we have 200 ways in which maybe we can relate or maybe we can't relate. And in any given situation, you feel both a comfort that somebody is going through a trial with you, and you also feel this loneliness that nobody really understands what I'm going through. And that sometimes is true, except for one person, and that's God. God knows. God not only knows what you're going through, but he understands what you're going through. And he has provided a way for you to connect with him so that you can say, it is well. The title of our series is called Thriving in Babylon. And Babylon was the city of this this, um, time period. This is where um, the Jews were taken into exile, taken against their will, captive by a foreign army, and living in this culture, this city that was very um, antagonistic in the antithesis of their own culture and their own worship. And yet God spoke to these men and women um, an, an encouraging word through the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel that you can overcome and thrive in the midst of an environment that seems too hard for you, that seems overwhelming for you, that seems at odds with what you're called to be. This is the story of Daniel. And we, we decided we want to title it Thriving in Babylon. Because oftentimes as people of God and, and or people, but I want to speak to the people of God here for a second. Oftentimes as people of God, we think it's a great victory when we just survive. Ah, I made it through. I made it through without cussing. I made it through without throwing something at somebody. I made it through without killing somebody. Even though I felt like I wanted to, I felt like I wanted to scream, I felt like I wanted to give them what they deserved, ah, I made it. I I kept my Christian witness. And yet God doesn't want us just to keep our witness. He wants us to thrive and really find God in the midst of circumstances that are beyond our control oftentimes. And he doesn't want us just to thrive. I, I made note in week one, I made note of the fact that these men that were, that were being highlighted were young men. I gave a shout out to our high school students and our college students. Well, I want to give a shout out to our high school students, our college students, our young adults, our middle-aged people, those wonderful, glorious people that are in their middle age. I don't want to highlight any of those here in the room. To our, our ones that are empty nesters and are moving on to that place of retirement, to our retirees in the room, and those that are at the ending of their life, I want to give a shout out to you because in this story, unlike the the flanneled story graphs of our childhood when we learned about Daniel and the lion's den, he wasn't a young man. Daniel in this story is now roughly 80 years old. Daniel has lived um, through two kingships, possibly more than that, but we're now into another, another ruler. He has outlived a few rulers, and yet he continues to remain in favor. Surprising, surprise, surprise, right? Not a surprise. It shouldn't be by this time as we've studied it. And here he is in his 80th year, finding himself questioned again for the very things he's been living for throughout his time in this kingdom. He hasn't changed. Daniel has not changed. Daniel is the same man that he was at 20 
although more mature and more godly, I'm sure. But his commitment to God at 20 was his commitment at 40, was his commitment at 60, was his commitment at 80, and yet the culture around him continued to question throughout those years, what are you all about? What are you doing? And here he is again at the end of his life facing the same kind of trial he faced at the beginning of his life. Everybody who is older than 30 or 40, can you give me an amen? That trials don't ever stop. For those of you who are hoping, man, if I could just get through high school, everything will change. If I can just get through college, everything will be okay. If I can just get that one great job and get that promotion, boy, smooth sailing. If I could just get my kids out of diapers, everything will be okay. Let me tell you, they get into middle school and high school and things still are a challenge. Can I get an amen for everybody who has kids that are in high school and college and that are adults? It does, challenge, it, it, it doesn't stop. Why does it not stop? Because we live in a world that is not fully redeemed yet. And we live in a world that is constantly changing and constantly questioning, what is this Daniel dude all about? So here he is at 80. You know what he reminded me of? He reminded me of a man that I just want to highlight right now because I don't know how much longer he's going to live. But Billy Graham, 97 years old. He's 97. Isn't that amazing? 97 years old. The the last Wikipedia update page says that those around him guesstimate, and the Billy Graham Foundation is pretty good at statistics and stuff, so I bet you their guesses are better than most guesses. They do a lot of research. That 3.2 million people, 3.2 million people in Billy Graham's life have responded to the invitation of the gospel through his crusades. 3.2 million people. Unbelievable. As of 2008, which is now however many years ago, eight years ago, Graham's estimated lifetime audience as a preacher and a radio and television broadcaster topped 2.2 billion people have heard about Jesus through this man's life. And yet he was not without controversy. He was not without ridicule throughout his life. He had standards about how, uh, he, how, how he wanted to live a pure and, and, and above reproach life. And so he, he had a standard that he would never ride alone with a woman in his car. And people were like, what? You're a freak. What's that all about? And he said, I, I want to live above reproach so that there would never be something said about me or could be assumed about me that is not true of my character. In the early 50s, when... when uh, Racial tension and segregation was very prevalent in, the, in this country, but especially in the South, and he is from the South. He opened up his crusades and said, my crusades will not be segregated crusades. I want every race and nationality in my crusades. And he was a trailblazer to the scorn of not only white Southerners, but also white Southern believers to our shame as a church. 
He was so radical in trying to make his crusades integrated at that time that not only did he, com he communicate that they were not going to be segregated, but he invited Martin Luther King to come and preach at his crusade. He was criticized. He, he traveled to South Africa and spoke against apartheid. He's been criticized, criticized by the conservative Christians in the church for being too liberal. He's been criticized by liberal Christians in the church for being too conservative. He's been criticized by religions for being too authoritative in his de declaration that there's only one God, and that's Jesus. And yet, countries still welcomed him in. Nations still said, come. And it has been repeated, he has repeatedly been in the Gallup's list of the most admired men and women his whole life. He's appeared on the list 55 times since 1955, including a 49-year consecutive run. That's pretty amazing. By the mid-60s, he had become the great legitimator. His presence conferred sanctity on events, authority on presidents, acceptability on wars, desirability on decency, and shame on indecency. By the middle 70s, he was deemed America, and to many, the world's pastor. And yet, he never compromised his integrity in his faith, in his declaration publicly to billions of people that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God but through him. How we live our faith in our 20s, how we live our faith in our 30s, how we live our faith in their 40s. I want to be known. Do you want to be known? I want to be known as one who, who someone can say he was consistently living his faith throughout his life. And at 80, God willing that I'm alive, I want to be seen as vibrant and in love with Jesus in God as I, as I have been in my earlier years. But that takes a faith like Daniel that we're going to look at, look at today. So Daniel 6 we're going to look real quickly at this passage of Scripture and, and come away with a couple of highlights. So he's got a new king in verse 1 and 2. Um, we're not quite sure. Uh, theologians and historians are not quite sure who Darius is, although some um, have concluded as they, they read the text that possibly Darius might be Cyrus himself or some, some ruler under the historical reign of King Cyrus. But we have a new king in this story. And Daniel um, is not new, but the king is new. And this king appoints three governors, appoints a hundred wise men, satraps, and then he puts three administrators over these 120 people, and Daniel is one of them. So Daniel is the wise man of the wise men, and, and we'll see later that not only is he put over this whole, this whole um, network of rulers, but... Darius finds such great favor in him that he plans to set him over the entire kingdom. So read with me there, verse 3. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. The NIV says exceptional quality. In the NASB, it says um, uh, extraordinary spirit. 
exceptional qualities in the, in the translation, the NASB, it's extraordinary spirit. I like that transition, translation because I really do believe that with these men, what was happening with Daniel and what was happening with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and what happens with you and me as believers in Jesus is that God puts an extraordinary spirit in us to not just live ordinary lives. We're to be extraordinary. We are not just called to survive, but we are called to thrive in our context. It doesn't mean we're going to be a Billy Graham. It doesn't mean that we're going to be some unbelievable, um, publicized, and well-known leader or breakthrough um, uh, worker in our field. But it does mean that whoever is in contact with our life recognizes something different in us, something extraordinary, something out of the ordinary that should cause them to wonder and cause them to inquire and cause them to possibly acknowledge the God that placed that extraordinary spirit within us. Daniel had an extraordinary spirit or an exceptional quality to him that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He had distinguished himself uh, by his work He had distinguished himself by his character, and he was distinguished, as we'll find later, by his relationship with the living God. He knew God. He had developed a relationship with God throughout his life. My question to you and to me is, do you know, or do people know you as different? Do people know you as as a different kind of person because an extraordinary spirit is in you? And upon you. Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, the disciples, they, were, they realized that these were unschooled, ordinary men, but they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There was something very ordinary about them, and there was something very extraordinary about them. That's who you and I are. That's who we're called to be. Great favor was upon Daniel. Verse 4, and at this, because of this, the administrators, there's those two other administrators, and the satraps, there's 120 of them, try to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his context, conduct of governmental affairs, but they were unable to do so. They tried to drum up something. They tried to look under every rock. They tried to find something that they could accuse him of to bring him down, and they couldn't find anything. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for the charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of God. Our lives in this culture, in our world, in our place of living, the people that watch us, that don't know God, they want to see or they need to see otherness in us. If a culture that you're involved in is corrupt, then they need to see honesty and integrity. If it's a mistrusting culture, they need to see somebody they can trust. If it's a lazy, negligent culture, and these are the three ways in which uh, Daniel was described in the positive, then they need to see somebody who works hard and fulfills his commitments or her commitments and is worthy of trust and honor. And this is who Daniel was. We can live this way. We can strive to live this way and ask God for His help and give our best efforts to live this way. 
Because God is our God and he lives within us as believers. When we live this way, we'll find favor. We might not always find favor uh, in the way that we expect it. We, we will find possibly um, rejection in the way that Daniel felt reject, found rejection. But to those that it matters, first to God and to those he's influencing, we'll find favor. The favor that's worth retaining, the favor that's worth receiving. But this promotion and this acknowledgement of Darius that he is going to promote not only Daniel to this position of administrator, which he already has, but he plans to place the kingdom under his rule, obviously that stirs up some jealousy, doesn't it? It stirs up some, well, yeah, right. Who is this person? And of course, uh, people, scholars, uh, uh, theologians of scripture wonder if, if that is an ethnic jealousy because he's a Jew. Or is it just a professional jealousy, or both, because he's so excellent in what he does? But either way, we see the same story um, arise again as we saw um, earlier in Daniel. Uh, There is this this desire of these that work with him to bring him down. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of any of us who have felt at any time during our work profession or our life lived in culture where we have felt that our faith has put us at odds with those that we work with. I'm going to let you think about that for a second. Because I think in a culture that is moving quicker and quicker away from the ideals of Christianity and faith in Jesus and or the fruits of that faith, you should find some opposition in your workplace for how you live. We don't get any indication throughout Daniel that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Daniel live any way offensive in in regards to the norms of the culture. We don't don't get any indication that they are up in the face of their workers. Hey, I got to tell you about, I got to tell you about God. Hey, hey, we need to have a conversation because you're ungodly. You, You got a foul mouth. You need to just clean up your act. They weren't doing that. They weren't offensive in the way that we can be offensive at times, and that's not what I'm promoting. All they were was simply excellent in their job, and they gave acknowledgement to the fact that their excellence came from the living God. Plain and simple. But in that place of excellence and devotion to God, they brought trouble unto themselves. That possibly might be your story as well. And that's okay. That's a good thing because God is drawing a line to bring hearts and lives to himself through your story of faithfulness and love for God. And so they set up a trap. So verses 6 through 9, everyone in the leadership team um, goes to Darius and they say, hey, we, uh, you need to make an edict, you need to make an edict, and we kind of heard this before in Daniel, that anybody that prays to anybody, a god or a human other than you, Darius, needs to be thrown into the lion's den. And I don't know what Darius was thinking, but he, somehow that appeal sounded good to him, maybe it appeal, appealed to his pride or whatever, and he said, yeah, that's a good law, let's do it. And as soon as he signed off that law, I'm sure that he probably thought in the way that he responds later in the chapter, what did I do? Because Daniel is not going to be one of those kind of people. 
So they set a trap for Daniel. They set a trap in respect to his religious views, his worship, and his convictions. And then they watched and they waited. Well, they didn't have to wait long because look at verse 10. Look at what happened. Now, when Daniel learned that the decrees had been published, he went up, he went home. He did exactly what we would all do, right? If you worship God, you're going to be killed. All right. Well, I'm going to go worship God. Sounds logical, doesn't it? If you worship and pray, you're going to be thrown in the lion's den. Could it be that possibly when we come under persecution and trial for our faith, that our first response isn't to live more boldly for God? That the very tactic of the enemy through humans is to intimidate us to be quiet, to not talk, to be more discreet in our prayers, to tone it down so that no one would be offended. This is what our culture tells us to do, doesn't it? The laws that are being set in place and being acted day by day are are aimed at keeping devout followers of God quiet. Now, we understand why. I can understand why. When you have devout followers of God killing people, that brings fear. When you have devout followers of God making people feel ashamed and and feeling ridiculed and, and in the name of God destroying people's character, you can understand why people recoil back. And yet, at the same time, there are millions of believers in Christ who don't live that way. That the very nature of our government and system is based on the freedom that's found through Christ that allows the opportunity for everybody to be loved and honored and respected because they're human beings. That is a Christian concept. That's a Christian value. And yet we find our culture saying, you need to be more quiet. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't pray in public. Don't pray in schools. Don't share that value that you have that's based out of your New Testament Bible. Don't share that with anybody because that we find ourselves being cornered. And we find ourselves feeling intimidated and afraid to be salt and light in the world. But what did Daniel do? Verse 10. He went home. He went upstairs to his room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group. They knew where he was going to be. They had it all set up. They found Daniel. They took a picture on their iPhone and they went back. (laughs) And they said, look, caught him. He did what he always does. He did what he always does. He prayed. He called out to God. Now listen, sometimes we, we put these men and these women that we read about on these pedestals and we go, you know, it's like they're almost God themselves. I have, a, have an, an imagination in my mind or I have a thought that probably Daniel was a human just like you and I. And I imagine that when he heard the edict, he didn't just go, but he was shaking. And he was walking and he was thinking about the course of his actions. And it says in Scripture that he did what he had always done. And he got down on his knees. He opened his window and he looked towards Jerusalem as he had always done. And he 
placed in his mind's eye this God who had been faithful to him for 80 years. And he thought about the angry, jealous, bitter men and women that he worked around. They were at, after his life, wanted him dead, wanted him ripped limb for limb in a lion's den. And he sat on his knees and he thought, what am I going to do? And probably without having to think long, he thought, there's only one thing I can do when I'm in a trial and when my life is on the line. I've got to pray. He wasn't being arrogant in flaunting his religion. He was living his religion. He was in the midst of a trial, and the only thing he knew was even though his prayers would bring his death, his prayers were his only salvation. There was only hope. God, it's not me on trial, it's you on trial. What can I do? You're the living God. I have to call out to you. I have to believe in you because you're the one who's already saved me. You're the one who can save me, God. And it says he called out to God on his knees with thanksgiving and with prayers. Help me. Help those who love Philippians 4 says that do not be anxious about anything, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love that passage of Scripture because it says, call out to God with petitions and cries and with thanksgiving. Daniel was thanking God in the midst of an edict that was going to sentence him to death. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you are my deliverer and I can trust in you. Even though the lions surround me, I trust in you. See, there's a picture here in Daniel 6 of the lions and it's a picture of Christ. Oftentimes, the Old Testament miracles are a foretaste of the things that we see in the New Testament. They they bring bring illumination or bring a a taste of what is to come. And here Daniel is, surrounded by lions, living like a lamb. My, My one encouragement to you, one of my encouragements to you this morning is that you, like Daniel, and Daniel like Jesus, and Jesus who lives in you and me who believe, we can live innocent, pure, and trusting of God in the midst of lions that surround us. See, the lions in the den were not the first lions in this story, were they? The first lions and the lions that you and I live with are the lions of the satraps and the administrators, the ones that are breathing out violence, that are breathing out hate, that are breathing out rejection, that are breathing out condemnation, that are breathing out ridicule, that are breathing out, ah, you know what, who are breathing around you. They're, They're the fears that the enemy whispers at night in your be- on your bed, you're not going to make it. You're not going to overcome. You can't possibly overcome this situation. This thing's going to take you down. Those are the lions in this story. The physical lions are just a manifestation of what he's already experienced. And Daniel, when he got down on his knees and prayed to God and said, God, I trust you, he defeated the lions right there. I am absolutely convinced that after Daniel, in this period of time of prayer, three times a day, 
got up and then was found guilty of worshiping another God, that he was at peace when he was led to the land. He had already seen the victory because he found it in prayer. How many of you pray? <laughs> How many of you love Jesus? No, I'm just kidding. Sunday school questions with Sunday school answers. I wasn't expecting your hands up, but how many of you pray? I'm not talking about uh, somebody needs to pray for a meal here, prayer. I'm not talking about a, you know what, uh, uh, I, I get down on my knees at bed and I say my one sentence prayer before I go to bed, prayer. But how many of you have developed, as Daniel has in this story, a life of prayer? It's so consistent and so knowledgeable of the living God that when circumstances like storms or trials are in your life, you know that the place of victory is in the place of prayer. This is what Daniel models for us. This is, this is, this is what we want to be as a people and as a church. We want to be a people of prayer. We want to be a people of prayer that not only pray for ourselves, but for others. I think that Daniel was not just interceding for his own life, but he was interceding for other people's lives in the kingdom. For other people who might be going to the lion's den. For other people who hopefully through his life of 60 years had put their faith in God because of the faithful witness of him. We saw Daniel going to the lion's den, but I think Daniel was not just calling out for help for himself, but he was interceding for his nation. And he wasn't only, only interceding for his nation of, of fellow Jews that were under captivity, but he was interceding for Darius. He was in, interceding for the satraps and the administrators, and he was saying, God, help me, but also help them see that you are the living God. When we can turn our lives from a place of just surviving to a place of thriving and believing that God is a God who not only brings us peace in the storm, but He can deliver us if He wants to. Now we not only have peace for our own lives, but we start to see a ripple effect of peace in other people's lives. And we start to see revival among those who don't know Him. Can I fast forward? You're like, darn, you didn't, we're, we're almost finished. You haven't even told the good part of the story. Because you already know the good part of the story. The good part of the story is, is that He gets thrown into the the pit of lions, Darius, somewhere along the way, has seen the character and the goodness of not only Daniel's life, but he acknowledges God by saying, Daniel, may the God that you serve be with you. Interesting for the person who had an edict that you shouldn't call out to any other God but himself. There the king is doing it himself. May the God that you serve help you. And Darius is so convinced that there's a possibility that something could happen, that he can't sleep at night, he doesn't eat, and the very first thing in the morning he does is run to the pit. Why is he running to the pit if, the, if Daniel's already eaten by lions? Because there was something birthed in Darius of hope that possibly the God of Daniel could save him and therefore save his own life, I believe. He's looking for a miracle in Daniel's life so that he can find a miracle in his. Your life matters. How you live it. Because there are people that are watching you in your trial. And that's why I think God lets us go through trials. I do not believe that the God of the universe has exempted us from trials because we know Jesus. 
And the reason I don't believe that is because I believe your very witness through your trial and your suffering gives hope for people who are going through the same. So how you live in your trial and suffering is important. That you put your hope in God and call out to Him and pray to Him. And very likely, there might be a Darius watching. And what does Darius do at the end? What does Darius do at the end? He finds Daniel. Kind of, it's kind of interesting. He does two things. He finds Daniel. He brings him up. He celebrates. And in a very judgment that the administrators and the satraps wanted to do to Daniel, he places upon them. It's kind of actually a gruesome gruesome verse, verse 24, but it's a reality. Darius had all all of the accusers thrown into the pit. And the lions were not like lambs in that pit. They were as they were called. They were designed to be. They were ferocious lions. And then in verse 25, Darius makes an edict. He declares something. Read with me what he says. He says, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, well, actually, verse 25, and King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. He becomes, he becomes a preacher. He becomes a prophet. He becomes a declarer of God in who he is. God receives glory. Daniel lived like a lamb in the lion's den. And as a result, God through Daniel, I believe, is making some lion's lambs. He's taking what was meant for harm and turning it to glorious good, not only for the salvation of Daniel, but for the salvation of people like Darius. Would you stand with me?